I'm Alika Boma, and you're listening to a podcast hosted by the Accelerating Achievement for Africa's Adolescence Hub, hosted by Oxford University and the University of Cape Town. This podcast was recorded as part of a series in Oxford in November 2019 to discuss the theme of understanding adolescence in African contexts. Thanks for listening. This is a podcast uh, exploring uh, ideas around um, violence uh, and adolescence in African contexts. Um, and before we get into the, you know, the, the, the substance of the discussion, um, I think it would be great if we introduced ourselves. So, um, so I'm Alika Burma, and I am, uh, together with Chris Desmond, um, looking after Work Package 3 on the Accelerating Achievement for Africa's Adolescence Hub project. Um, I am in uh, my professional life a professor of world literature in English with a specialism on the West African novel. Uh, my name's Diana Walters. I work um, with two hats. One of them is that I am a lay Anglican chaplain at the University of Plymouth. Uh, so working on a um, in, in a university environment uh, in a in an interface um, cross-cultural interdialogue kind of way with staff and students as uh, parts of lots of different programs going on and the other thing that I do the the other work that I do is I work in um, as an international heritage um, consultant so working particularly in post-conflict countries um, a range of them, former Yugoslavia, former Soviet Union, many former communist countries. And I've done about four to five years work in Kenya, working with heritage and looking at ways that heritage can support development. Thanks, Diana. My name is Patricia Daly. I am a geographer here at the University of Oxford. I'm professor of the human geography of Africa. And I am interested in um, African politics and particularly uh, issues. Um, I have done research on violence in Africa, but political violence in particular. And that led me to look at gender-based violence and sexual violence um, in conflict-affected areas. And in particular in Burundi and um, Rwanda but, and the Congo, but mainly in Burundi. And I'm interested in, um, as a geographer, I suppose, I'm interested in um, this multiscalar relationships of violence. I don't see violence, well, I can, I can talk about that later, can't I? Yes. Yeah. Thanks, Patricia. <laughs> Hello, my name is Heidi Stöckel. I'm the director of the Gender Violence and Health Centre at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And I, for the Oxford um, Hub, the Accelerator Hub, I am leading with Ilona Tosca work package number two, which is on existing data and new cohort studies. Thanks, Heidi. So just to kind of um, open things up a bit, it's already clear from your introductions that um, you are 
um, interested in, um, have thought about, have considered um, the impacts of violence on individuals' lives. Um, in particular, I, I think um, on women's lives um, and on the lives of young people, mm -hmm. we, and also and not forgetting um, political violence in particular. Um, when we think about um, this sort of building up now to a kind of a very open question, when we think about um, interventions that might improve the lives of adolescents, whether in African countries or elsewhere, when we think about those interventions, we're often confronted with violence as a, as a social problem impacting people's lives. Um, this violence takes many forms. Um, I've, in my research in the past, looked at um, how infrastructures can often work impact on people's lives in disruptive, violent and restrictive ways. Um, so, so I suppose this opening question is, um, how do you understand, how do we all here understand the violence that impacts the lives of young people? Yeah, so I think it's a very good question. And as you already indicated, we tended to look a lot at violence against women, women and girls. But the, the big issue that we find when we look at adolescents is that in some ways they are falling between the cracks because from the violence against women's service and the violence against women's world, we look at intimate partner violence. So we do include in our surveys women and girls aged 15 and above. But really the focus of these surveys is partner violence. What violence do you have from your partner? And to some extent, non-partner violence. At the same time, the more, you know, the violence against children surveys that are out there, they focus on violence that children face in the home by parents, potentially by schools, by neighbors and their closer surroundings. And they start looking at intimate partner violence as well, but then also they end with interviewing women and girls, children who are 18. So in some ways, none of these surveys really capture these multiple forms of violence that adolescents experience because they are in this between age where they start to have relationships and at the same time they're still living with their parents or their caregivers where they also face, might face violence from, obviously don't necessarily. And then they also, most of them, hopefully, are still in schools. And the more and more um, research that is done in schools find that there is multiple forms of physical violence by teachers through punishment, etc. But there's also increased, uh, there's quite a lot of sexual harassment going on as well. And then, you know, also on the way home, there are all these kind of new, new stories or studies that show that um, adolescents, when they go home, or children, they also face um, violence there in public spaces. So I think there's quite a big range of forms of violence that adolescents face that are very particular to that, um, that age group because they face these multiple forms because they're transitioning. And taking in everything we know from the life course is that adolescence also is an extremely important area, um, time period in, in, adolescence, uh, in, in the life course because this is when first relationships are formed, when you know, they might start having children, so it's quite, you know, an, quite a, a very tense, intense period where these experiences might also really set the course for the future partnerships, the future life um, that they have. And, and Patricia added to that very complicated spectrum that Heidi was just sketching there, we also have 
um, I mean, relating to public spaces, we also have political violence, don't we? We also have... Yeah, I mean, there's been quite a bit of work that's been done on, say, um, the ways in which young men and women have, particularly young men, have been drawn into political conflict, whether it's as ch child soldiers um, or whether as forming militias at the time, you know, um, by, uh, at election time. Um, and the young men who see, or the adolescent um, um, who seem to be vulnerable are those living predominantly, say, in informal settlements or in rural areas through which, in which rebel groups um, operate. Um, I, you know, I mean, I think I'm much more, I suppose my interest really is more broadly in how these different forms of violence intersect. And as a geographer, we, you know, we, we see violence as being produced in a particular spaces, but also how particular spaces that might themselves produce violence and the relationship with those spaces at different scale. So I'd be interested, I suppose my work would be interested in looking at, say, um, the consequent domestic violence doesn't happen, or some, and even sexual violence doesn't happen in isolation from the wider society. Mm -hmm. So, what are the violence? What um, you know, scholars now call slow violence. What forms mm -hmm. of slow violence mm -hmm. or low intensity violence might trigger, you know, or you know, um, facilitate these other forms of violence? Right. Well, I mean, what is happening within the society, the wider context, um, uh, that, uh, that that might result in. You know, uh, in hunger and deprivation and stuff like that, a violent, violence in, in the places that I've visited, in the say in the informal settlements. Um, I think for me, one of the most vivid ones was an informal settlement in Nairobi, and just seeing the desperation on on adolescents. I was talking to young young men, and the desperation on their their you know faces. Um, for me, and the way in which, you know, just the living conditions there, you know, everything was structured around producing pain, you know. Um, and I think that sort of violence uh, then feeds into other, as you say, uh, young, you know, it's at a critical age. It's when, um, you know, critical adolescence is a critical age. It's when young people are inhabiting their bodies almost for the first time um, and they are vulnerable in all sorts of ways and they are seen you know it's it's the sort of it's at the age when the body is seen young people person's body is seen as being out uh, can be seen as being out of place or wherever they go whether it's in britain it's in shopping malls or in mm -hmm. you know women at night young women at night or um you know city centers or wherever you know you know they're not seen to they don't have a space for them to mm -hmm. inhabit where they're naturally seen except probably on football Mm. Um, ground where it's also a space in which they are recruited for violence in, mm. in certainly in Burundi football is one of the areas that policy, politicians sponsor football mm. matches and football teams mm. and that's a space where recruitment takes place so you know I'm interested in I suppose looking at these spaces mm. where violence mm. that may produce violent situations for young people and also where they may encounter violence and how that is related to the wider structures. Mm. And I guess they are both kind of out of place, and mm. yet they feel themselves to be hyper-visible yeah. in a way, because, you know, as you say, they're just inhabiting their bodies for mm -hmm. the first time. Mm -hmm. So they, they're both kind of out there, and yet, you know, not, not in place yeah. while being, yeah. yeah. being hyper-visible. Yeah. Does this also relate to some of what you've observed, whether in your work as a chaplain or your work in Kenya? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I'm I'm really really interested, Patricia, on your, um, on, on that 
the, the spatial aspect of this mm. um, because I think that that's something that that absolutely resonates with the work that I did and um, that I do in Kenya which is around narratives and particularly cultural narratives and the absence of peace in those narratives the kind of the inevitable focus there the, the the grand narrative of mm. conflict uh, which has normalized conflict in so many ways in in both, I mean, in terms of spa spatially, in terms of architecture, in terms of living conditions, right through to sort of peer pressure and, and you know, that sort of level of relationships as well. And that, I'm, I'm always struck by that sense of how you have to, and I'm going to say something really sort of contradictory in a moment, but you have to fight for spaces of peace, actually. You have to fight to counter that. Um, and adolescence is, you know, I think we are so quick to possibly because we remember it mm -hmm. uh, and, and or, or we witness it in our own children our own families but it you know it is that place of turmoil mm -hmm. uh, and the negative connotations around that seem to manifest somehow in so many different ways so the the work that we're you know that uh, that we've been doing with peace museums which are predominantly across um, Kenya and Uganda and they are often very often in, in the, the rural communities which are very susceptible to political persuasions of violence particularly around election time and sort of layered with with issues around drugs and uh, and, uh, and and guns and so on um, that that sense of um, the loss really uh, of any other alternative narratives mm. Mm. Um, and as if somehow we we expect that as when we go into those spaces as well, it's it's mm -hmm. taken for granted. Mm. How do we reclaim that? I guess. Or how do we actually give those voice because they are so easily. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I suppose what what you've all highlighted is that it's not only that um, that if you like, I don't know, life or politics or, or um, even the formation of militias impacts violently on these adolescents' lives. It's also that they themselves, in part in consequence, in part because they're transitioning, you know, between um, life mm. forms, if you like, as, as Heidi was saying, it's also that they themselves are agents of violence. Mm. I mean, mm. you know, the, mm. I, I think it was a... It, it, it was a phrase that you use, Patricia. They're producing pain. You know, they, they. I guess they understand that there's a kind of power to be, to be had through producing pain. Um, I mean, that's very problematic, right? So mm -hmm. that, the, the, so that these young people who are encountering, you know, different multiple forms, slow violence, you know, mm -hmm. if you like, immediate violence, public violence, um, intimate mm -hmm. violence. Um, are at the same time re reacting, you know, perhaps violently through this. Is this is this something that relates to to your research at all? I mean, anyone. We don't need to <laughs> go around in that. I think there's a lot of evidence. Well, you probably know more than me. Um, for, you know, looking at sort of, you know, people who've been abused and their propensity for, mm. you know, um, reproducing abuse in their adult life. Mm. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I, I heard, I'm just, we're recording, but I heard, I mean, I listened to a, a talk not so long ago but about um, abuse in homosexual relationship and uh, the figure was that they, there was a sort of 80% chance if, of people, you know, carrying out abuse if they've been abused 
um, as a child or you know young person mm, mm. Um, and that was really I, you know I was struck by that figure and I suppose suspect it's the same in other areas it's as high in other you know um, but but the reason and the part and then I was thinking about uh, you know a young person who's in a homosexual who's who's coming out or, or is hiding their, mm. how much mm. abuse they must go through in schools mm. and in you know at home mm. probably and how you know how it must be difficult to move beyond that and I, I then that led me to think also about um, some of the young men um, young people I've met say in Burundi where you know they they, they their memories their intergenerational memories of their parent of you know, members of their family who've been extended family who've been killed, right? mm. and then how and many of them, if the if the relative was close, they want retribution. And I'm going to talk personally, although it's been recorded. Um, I I had a very violent mother when I was growing. Mm. When I wasn't when I was growing up, it was when I was ten. I came to Britain to live with my mom, mother. I grew up with my grandparents and aunts and uncles, and I had a fairly loving childhood. You know. And then my mother, who was actually in a very difficult situation, it's only as I got older realised, and for reasons that she never mentioned until I found out after she died, was very brutal to my brother and I, very, very violent. We couldn't do anything without her, you know, whacking us, getting the belt out, and so on. Um, and I was trying to think, figure out, you know, and I obviously realised in myself that as an adult and a parent, I could actually become like that. I started to think about what I could do to make myself mm. not be mm. consciously think about how I should behave, you know, like when my if some, my son did something, I'd get up, you know, I would start to get upset, and then I realize, oh my god, you know, I can't be, you know, like my mother. And there's no way I should go down that route for, you know, whatever. So mm. I think at some point we do make those choices mm. as to mm. whether we continue or not. But I think the context helps. Going back to context. Yes. You know, I mean, I was slightly, I'm sli I was slightly um, economically more salient than my mother, for example. You know, um, the pressures that you know I was under were different, and I think that that economics, you know, uh, the context, whether it's you could be in a wider family context, there might be other people around who mitigate against that sort of violence continuing, <laughs> or you might be on your own, um, and you're much more, you know, and I'm, it's not just talking about Africans; it could be any anyone. So. You know what what context are they growing up in that might enable you know that might facilitate or not the reproduction of that violence mm -hmm. that's what that's what i'm interested in in you know what you know what are the contexts that facilitate the reproduction on the or one not. hand but but that also facilitate the kind of diffusion yeah. or the kind of removal yeah of, yeah. of those um those violent consequences yeah and how people think through it you know consciously or subconsciously you know consciously do they you know because mm. i'm sure uh, you know a lot of people actually think through you know or even adolescents at that time do i do, whether they become violent or not and what mm. is it that dry you know mm. i'm sorry no it just immediately speaks to something so i did my phd research on violence and pregnancy in germany mm -hmm. and i found quite um, interestingly, for a lot of women, it just continues mm -hmm. during pregnancy. But there were some, very few though, where the violence stopped. And they said it's because the man actually said, I don't want to be like my father. And it was a very mm -hmm. conscious decision. Mm -hmm. And I think in terms of evidence, mm -hmm. in you know this intergenerational transmission of mm -hmm. violence when you had violent mm -hmm. parents, there, I mean, your likelihood is higher to be violent towards your mm -hmm. partner or experience mm -hmm. violence when you had it. But actually, mm -hmm. you're more likely, but it doesn't mean that 
it, it is like that for all actually most of the people show mm -hmm. resilience and show that they actually mm -hmm. they are not violent towards mm -hmm. it so mm -hmm. and then it depends really on the factors around it is there you know mm -hmm. did you have a mentor did you have a person mm -hmm. who you know helped you through this difficult mm -hmm. um, time with your family who showed you other types of mm -hmm. um, you know resolving a conflict mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of these mediating factors that yeah. actually can break it. Yeah. And as you said, you know, this very strong consciousness of I don't want to be like that. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I will try to find other strategies. Mm -hmm. So I talked mm -hmm. a lot with young, um, also very young parents. Mm -hmm. And one of them just said, oh, as soon as I saw the conflict coming, I would just go out of the house and take him with me because when we outside, mm -hmm. he can't mm -hmm. hit me mm -hmm. <laughs> because mm -hmm. others observe. So it's mm -hmm. a way of, you know, making sure the mm -hmm. conflict doesn't go. Mm -hmm that far. Mm. So I think this context is extremely yeah. important. Yeah. yeah. Have you also encountered sort of certain mediating factors to Yes, to, absolutely. Yeah. I think I mean I think this is the, you know these sort of how how one um, either encounters or can create or support spaces of transformation mm. or or spaces of choice or or whatever it may be whatever kind of words are appropriate. Um, I think is is a is is a question that is not often looked mm. at, and I think mm. that's a real shame mm. because I, I mean that's that was exactly what what we were trying to do with working with the with the peace museums because the the program the sort of the basis of that philosophy was that um, was that you know regardless of the fact that communities had mm. these sort of years and generations mm. of you know violence and and, and conflict mm. and disputes largely over land or, or water or what are you know sort of very 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 fundamental things there was no inevitability about mm. that when you start to actually look at the sort of the coming at it from the perspective of cultural heritage mm. when you start to look at the material culture or the or even more so the intangible culture mm. so the memories the landscapes mm. the plants the you know the things that are shared um, uh, across uh, and this applies, you know, in every context that I've worked. Um, once you start to begin to to sort of find those kinds mm -hmm. of, and they, and, and they become like transmitters, really. They mm -hmm. they play a role, but oh, they have the potential to, let's say, to play a role that that gives some kind of you know small voice, small alternative, and it might just be that stirring within mm. the individual. Mm. But of course, you know, the reality of the context, the reality of mm. the economic situation, you know, the educate, all the rest of it, I mean, that we mustn't, we, you know, we really must recognise that as being absolutely crucial. Mm. But maybe, Friendship, sorry, sorry, just no, to go to yeah. Patricia's um, a story that she mm. shared, I think her grandparents did show, you know, mm -hmm. a kind of way, how should a family, how should children be raised, how should mm -hmm. a family talk. And, you know, so the, the groundwork was actually probably laid yeah, by them yeah. that showed you strategies. Mm -hmm. How, you know, how mm -hmm. should I be doing this? How should I handle myself if my child overwhelms mm -hmm. me, which all children mm -hmm. do? <laughs> at least fine yeah. Uh, yeah. but you know yeah. so you kind of had this contrasting thing like mm -hmm. you know and this mm -hmm. so it might not be a formal mentor anyway mm -hmm. but just one relative that shows mm -hmm. an interest mm -hmm. or shows mm -hmm. different ways mm -hmm. of dealing with conflicts that yeah. are non-violent yeah. yeah. so yeah. Or, or, or friends I mean mm -hmm. um, I, I had a, a verbally very violent father who was dealing with a lot of war trauma himself mm -hmm. and um, you know I escaped to the houses of friends mm -hmm. and um, was particularly 
drawn to, if I now look back, I mean, I didn't see at the time, I was particularly drawn to um, friends who had families that were very kind of, um, I don't know, less hierarchical than you yeah. know, the, what I was used to. Yeah. Um, so, so, so I think friendship groups are also, yeah. also quite important there. It's interesting that we're all using the language of space, though, aren't we? Yeah. We're all using that sort of sense mm-hmm. of withdrawing or moving or, mm-hmm. or or moving into a different emotional or relational yes. space. Yeah. I mean, it is yeah. really spatial. Yeah. But um, I think, um, just from my context, one of the things that saved me was the library. Yes. It's another space, isn't it? <laughs> it's, another, it's quiet. Yeah. yeah. And books. And it's got a lot of entertainment and, 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 in it. And, yeah. Yeah, another world. And, another world. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. So, you know, having the yeah. library, spaces where young people can go mm. to libraries, yeah. places where they, you know, yeah. and youth club, but more so the library because mm. library was open more and, often. And, and, and you know, yeah, you look know? at us, you know, we're mm-hmm. taking these spaces yeah. away. It, it is actually criminal, mm-hmm. I think, in terms of, you know, what do we, where are people supposed to go, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially when you don't have money and when you're young, yeah. you're, mm-hmm. you know, you can't go and buy a cafe, a coffee for three, you know, three pounds. Or and especially like. where the weather, sorry to yeah. go from yeah. the kind of really serious mm-hmm. to the slightly frivolous, but I mean, where the weather isn't, isn't yeah. exactly great for hanging out <laughs> yeah. on, yeah. on yeah. the yeah. square. So, yeah, you hang out on the street where mm-hmm. the weather is good, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, having spaces where they can go and yeah. actually envisage, you know, and imagine being in another world, you know, I think is really, really important. Uh, I mean, I often wonder, and this does take it a bit mm. um, further, so I'm saying we have all these big interventions that mm. we're running, and I think in the hub there are all these structural interventions and mm. these big programs that are mm. run. And in terms of violence, I'm really keen to find out if actually talking to someone else about it is something that does improve it. And we don't have the evidence yet, so it might Mm. actually be harmful as well. Mm. So I don't know. But I think in some ways, Mm -hmm. you know, we also have to think a little bit different how we tackle violence. And maybe just, you know, I think it does relate to your chaplaincy, like being able to go somewhere um, and just telling your story Mm -hmm. and having someone to Mm. listen, you know, be emphatical, kind of Mm -hmm. not judging. That already might um, help kind of people to, you know, react differently the next time. There is some amazing work going on around storytelling and encounter mm-hmm. in particularly um, a, a wonderful organisation in Northern Ireland called Healing mm-hmm. Through Remembering. Mm-hmm. And they are just doing the most amazing work, which is all based on that. It's, it's, pa- it's, it's recognising the power of the individual story mm-hmm. uh, and the uh, opportunity to, uh, and it, it I mean, follows very, very strict mm-hmm. ethical guidelines. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really, really, really well thought mm-hmm. through. Um, and um, an organisation called Diversity Challenges does this a lot. And they, for example, have brought together former members of the RUC, of the mm. Royal Ulster Constabulary, with former members or supporters of the IRA in the same space, hearing each other's story. And the, the research or the, the evidence that's coming out of those kinds of initiatives is really mm. I- impressive, mm. really mm. impressive. Uh, I mean, Brexit may throw all that back into the <laughs> back into the yeah. air, but you know, it, this. You, I, I totally agree with you, Heidi. The sense of the mm. of the individual story and the, mm. the space mm. to, and but also the learning the skills to being equipped mm. and supported to listen. Mm. 
mm-hmm. to something that is really intensely mm-hmm. difficult, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. counters everything mm-hmm. that you may have yeah. been mm-hmm. told. And yeah. sharing stories mm-hmm. as in different mm-hmm. perspectives too. Mm-hmm. Oh, that may be your story, but actually this was my role on mm-hmm. that day. This is where I was. Mm-hmm. This is, was mm-hmm. my perspective on, on mm-hmm. that particular situation. Yeah, I've been doing research, obviously, with refugees as well. And one of the things that uh, seems to happen all the time, and we, you know, I suppose researchers have talked about how we, how do we factor this into our research is that refugees like to tell their stories mm-hmm. um, and I mean they often it can be traumatic because they often have to tell them in difficult spaces so mm-hmm. in courts they in Britain or in front of an immigration tribunal and those are horrible you know, traumatizing spaces but also they want to tell them when you know they meet um, an interviewer we're saying is it because that's the narrative they're told or they expect us to want to hear we're trying to decide or whether it's um it's just you know a a way of you know coping yeah um in in your work heidi um have you observed that adolescents um are more comfortable telling their stories in certain contexts than others or um, in relation to certain or with certain people rather than other others? Um, not sure if I can completely answer it. Mm. One of the recent studies we've done was on sexual harassment in schools mm. in Tanzania. Mm. And I was extremely mm. surprised how open these girls and boys talked about their experiences. Mm-hmm. And because I would have assumed that it's something that, you know, it, it's a bit more hidden, but apparently it seems to be so frequent that you know a teacher would make comments on a Mm. girl's figure in the whole classroom with everyone present and I was also surprised how much boys really picked out Mm. on that and how Mm. uncomfortable it made them Mm. and how much they actually judged the teacher's kind Mm. of comments so they didn't really did not like it but um and how much they actually realized it and vocalized vocalized Mm. it as as well so I think sometimes you would be surprised and kind of a bit coming back to the previous mm. discussions, I do wonder about, you know, adolescent boys and if we are hearing them enough, actually, mm, really thinking about experience of violence and all these traumatic, difficult things, because I think girls have it a bit easier to talk about mm. it than boys who kind of have to behave as men and mm. they're more constrained by all these expectations that mm. are put on them or they themselves put on mm. them. So in some ways, I think it's one of the things we really should be focusing on mm-hmm. more is how to, you know, hear their their voices mm-hmm. um, a lot more. Because it is so, as kind of going back to the beginning, it's so important because they are the, you know, the partners of the futures, the fathers of the futures. Mm-hmm. They are going to be in positions of power or, you know, in anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've drawn out some very, very interesting threads, but is there anything that anyone would like to kind of close with or things you think we might have if we had another go we might talk about next time I, 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 I've got one um, which is I mean I, I, I think there have been such interesting um, reflections on space and context and safe space and transformative contexts and and football fields as places mm. of possible violence so you know all, all these you know, um, spaces both open and closed that impact um, people's lives in in particular ways, sometimes violent ways. Um, that was that was to me very very interesting. But um, anyway, the, we have a few more moments just to think aloud if we like. 
Yeah. I mean, just thinking about, you know, Dar Salaam, for example, I mean, the police are more likely to round up young men on the streets. So the streets, unless they're, you know, they, you know, they like um, people to, unless they, I mean, historically, if you look at, you know, young men are street traders. They were, you know, they've been formed, you know, they've been gangs. They're organised. They, they can. Um, but, but I suppose we're not talking about adolescents because, again, you know, as you, yeah, it's these young men are might be in their twenties, mm. you know, or even older. I mean, I've, you know. Um, you know, I, I was interviewing this, this young man, and I'm sure he was in his 40s, or he looked... Well, it was really difficult because mm -hmm. he just looked so much older than he probably was. And he was saying... He was talking about retirement, but he, he still, still saw himself as a young, you know, a, a young man. And I just felt that, that... Well, I mean, I think there had been research done on this. He just hadn't fulfilled any of his dreams. Mm. You know, he had not, as far as he was concerned, reached adulthood. They're much more vulnerable towards violence in cities. Mm. I mean, girls tend to be indoors or expected to be mm. indoors, but men, young men are expected to go out and find work or be mm. on the street, mm. or, you know, mm. respective mm. of their age mm. and do something. And mm. there's nothing to do. So mm. that, you know, so it's not just in vulnerability in terms mm. of being drawn into political violence, mm. but also in terms of just being, as you say, being out there. Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> mm. That's a really interesting mm. observation. Um, or, or, you know, that, that set me thinking very much about what you st how you started that, Patricia, when you talked about your example of the old, slightly older man mm -hmm. who's, who, who, and I, I'm just thinking, you know, there's that kind of set of emotions that we automatically associate with adolescence mm -hmm. and if mm -hmm. it's the kind of the inability to fulfill dreams mm -hmm. you know so you, you it, it, in that sense it's it feels like a place where you get stuck yeah mm. yeah. yeah and yet it's so. meant to be a, a time mm. of i'm thinking of heidi's word transitioning it's yeah. meant to be a time of great promise mm. of kind of fulfilling realizing mm. fulfilling your potential um finding your role in life mm -hmm. you know all those sort of all those very open-ended mm. things and then when it you know, when none of that it is has still in any that place future. Yeah. much longer. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. There is a book called Stuck, nice actually, written yeah, so. about young men in Rwanda. So I think I have a nice closing on that. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> and which Heidi. is that, you know, the violence, it's, you know, it obviously is a human rights issue mm -hmm. for both men and women, but it's also really an adolescence, but it really is a developmental issue. So regardless mm -hmm. of where they, mm -hmm. you know, experience violence, we have to prevent it because it's yeah. It kind of spreads. So mm. if this one individual experiences mm. violence as an adolescent, it mm. might slip over mm. to the relationship, to the children they have, mm. and it might, you know, mm. go into all these political violence mm. and the public mm -hmm. violence in the public spaces because it's not just contained yeah. as we often still think about it. It mm. really goes mm. further. Spreads. It yeah. spreads, yes. Mm -hmm. Like a virus. Yeah. Yeah. But we can end it and we can prevent it. Fabulous, and that's what we're going to explore. <laughs> Thanks very much, all three of you. Thanks, Dana. Thanks very much for listening to this podcast. Do have a listen to the others in this series on understanding adolescence in African contexts.